Okay, so it's just a final session before uh, our coffee break, uh, and it's an important session. Uh, and as you know, people who have attended the, uh, the last two symposia, we interlinked the contemporary with the historical. And uh, I was very moved by our next speaker's in, uh, 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 lecture before on the history of Common Amman, an extraordinary uh, part of our history, particularly uh, as we try to achieve freedom, and particularly around the Easter Rising. And of course, one of our own Abbey rebels, uh, Helena Maloney, who worked at the Abbey. And some of you, uh, when you come into the foyer, you'll see a plaque immediately to your, to your left. You'll, you'll see the names of the Abbey me members of the Abbey Company and staff who fought in 1916. And there are, we're, we're actually, there's a wonderful pamphlet for sale outside uh, by Fergal McGarry around the Abbey rebels. So, and that's of course, one of them was, was Helena Maloney. So now I'd uh, like to introduce uh, Dr. Mary McAuliffe, who will give a brief, but uh, I think quite revealing history of Common Amman. Mary. Uh, good afternoon, and it's, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here today to talk to you about the rebels or the, the feminists of the early part of the 20th century, their activism and their legacies, uh, and what they have to say to us today. And uh, as I was coming to the theatre, I walked across the Rosie Hackett Bridge, um, and it was a real, uh, I had a, uh, stopped for a moment to think about this and think about how uh, we need to also mark uh, what those women did on our public spaces. Uh, and having that bridge brings into focus in the middle of, uh, of Dublin, not just Daniel O'Connell and Jim Larkin and Parnell, but also the women uh, in the person of Rosie Hackett. Uh, and I would say following on from that, perhaps we should start a campaign to call the New Children's Hospital after another 1916 rebel, a socialist and a feminist, Kathleen Lynn. Uh, so, if I could put a shout out for that. But today I want to talk about what motivated these women uh, to fight in 1916 and what their legacies are, and what conversations looking at their histories uh, is opening up for us continuously. And of course, history is never static, it's never set in stone. And these new this new research we're doing into uh, the women and the women's contribution of 1916 is opening up new stories for us. And I was very moved by Nuala Hayes's uh, idea of the truth is hidden in the story, which of course it is. And so we're, we're unveiling un, uh, the truths and the stories. And there's no one truth, of course, as well. Uh, so I want to look at both the Cumann Amman women and the Irish Citizen Army women, because of course Helena Maloney fought with the Irish Citizen Army in 1916. And uh, I, if I can get this going. Um, this was a photograph taken uh, a couple of weeks after the rising in May 1916. There was about 66 women here. Uh, most of them have just been released from jail. They have just been released from Kilmainham Jail, where they spent 10 days. Um, and they were on the east wing of Kilmainham Jail, where they heard the executions each morning as they happened, day after day. Uh, that staccato of execution that changed Ireland and changed it utterly, as, as the poet said. Um, and these women include many who fought in 1916. And if you look at them, you see that they're mostly young women. And the research has shown that they're mostly young working class women. The leadership may have been middle class, but the, co the, the, the vast bulk of them are young working class women. What brought them to a violent revolution in 1916? Well, it starts early. It starts early in the 1900s with the setting up of Indian Naharan by Maud Gaughan. 
Indian the Heron was set up in response to the exclusion of women from organizations, from nationalist cultural nationalism, uh, from political organizations. And it was set up to respond to the need for women to have a space in which they could uh, participate in the political processes, participate in the public realm. Uh, we have to remember this is Victorian times. This is a time when women uh, should be in the home and those outside the home are suspect. Uh, somebody mentioned this morning the conditions are the Contagious Diseases Act. Women who are outside the home are suspect morally, they're suspect in all sorts of ways, and they are uh, open to all sorts of judgments. Uh, so women couldn't join political organizations, and Maud Gaughan set this up. In the end, the Heron was a militant, separatist, feminist um, organization, uh, very much involved in cultural nationalism, but also in social uh, activism. They set up penny dinners for poor children. They set up classes, obviously teaching a very uh, variation of Irish history and identity, which fed into nationalism. And they were also very famous for their tableau vivant, um, which they produce to give that story of Ireland, and I suppose get the blood up um, of those who were inclined to Irish uh, identity. And they're very much part of that uh, Irish Ireland. Um, um, ideas at that time. Uh, one of the things they did was they set up, a, uh, they had a newspaper. Uh, at the time, uh, you didn't have, uh, you know, uh, good hashtags or blogs or things like that, but if you were a serious organization, you had a newspaper. And they had Ban the Heron, edited by Helena Maloney, who Fiuk has mentioned, uh, was also an Abbey actor here uh, in that part of uh, the century. Uh, a very good, uh, she kept it going, she was a very good editor, and she had contributors from Madeleine French Mullen, also a rebel, Countess Markovitch wrote a gardening column in which she recommended that slugs be dealt with in the same way you deal with a British soldier, um, so you can imagine what that was. And she said that without the or the, the masthead said, without the participation of her women, Mother Ireland was going into battle with one arm tied behind her back. So Banda Heron was a very uh, interesting conduit of the ideas of these women. And of course, the suffragettes also had their newspaper. They had the Irish Citizen, as did uh, the trade union organization, as did the nationalist organizations. So newspapers were, I suppose, comparable to our social media. So the women got in on that as well. Um, excuse me. Uh, oh. Anyway, it's skipping. Um, not only, however, was feminism part of the uh, equation in 1900, it was also, we have to look at it in three ways. There were three ideologies, not really competing ideologies, you can see them in lots of ways, particularly for the women, as complementary ideologies, nationalism, socialism, and feminism. Although there is tensions between them, particularly between the nationalist women and the feminist women, over which should come first, the nation or gender. And I think there is, there is somewhere where we're still having the arguments. Uh, oftentimes, uh, everything else comes first and then we'll deal with the women's issues later. And I think those arguments are still being had to this day. Well, the first wave feminists had them first, had them as well. And the Irish Women's Franchise League wasn't too happy with many of their feminist colleagues who joined the nationalist organizations or who got involved in socialist organizations. Um, and feminism and socialism also has a very interesting uh, complementarity around this time as well, particularly after the setting up of the ITGWU and the Irish Women's Workers' Union in 1911, an organization that is often forgotten, founded by Delia Larkin. 
Uh, and on the, the stage at the first foundation, you have Countess Markovitch from Indian the Heron, you have Hannah Shee Skeffington from the Irish Women's Franchise League, and you have Delia Larkin from the Labour Movement. So you can see that the women are creating these networks um, through which they're fighting for all sorts of different causes, and through which they see women's issues can be conduited as well. Um, so, uh, and they're also very much influenced, of course, by the great socialist James Larkin. And it is, it is he who said uh, that the, um, win the women to your cause and your cause is secure. So after the 1913 lockout, in which many of the working class, the young working class women, and the middle class, more established feminists, uh, more established activists met in the soup kitchens, you begin to see the networks coalescing and coming together. And it is interesting that the more established middle class activists, the radical women, they join the Irish Citizen Army and not that other great uh, women's organization, Come and Amon, because it offers something else to them. It's, it's a, a more complicated uh, offering uh, of ideologies in that it's looking at both gender and class. And when James Connolly sets up the Irish Citizen Army in 1913, they join the Citizen Army. And there's huge debates about whether women were equal in the Citizen Army or not. But at the time, the women themselves who join felt they were equal. Madeleine French Mullen talks about being equal within the Citizen Army. Of course, the biggest organization at that time is the one Fiek mentioned, it's Come and Amon, founded in April the 2nd, 1914 in Wynn's Hotel. And in 2014, we had a big national commemoration of uh, Come and Amon. And both the foundation in 1914 starts something, but also I think, um, that the commemoration we had in 2014 started something in women's history as well. It started what is becoming more obvious in this, dec in this year of commemoration, that women's stories are coming to the forefront and that you can't have commemoration without inclusivity and particularly gender inclusivity. And it was founded to allow nationalist women have a space because of course the Irish volunteers didn't allow the women to join. Um, and what they were fighting for when they came out in 1916 well, they were fighting for this, the proclamation that the Republic guarantees religious and civil liberties, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens. And that's what they were fighting for. Uh, and that's what, uh, the proclamation is very important uh, when it comes to looking at what the women uh, continue to uh, be active about after 1916. And just to give you a really quick overview of what they did, they were couriers, they were nurses, they were first aid um, supports, uh, they did the cooking, that's true, but they were also dispatch carriers, they were snipers, they carried their arms in from the safe houses, they were operating in a city under fire. And often the question I'm asked at talks is, can you consider the women were combatants? Uh, and I think, yes, you can, they were there. Uh, and that's, they, they provided the logistical backup, they provided uh, the commissariat, they provided all the different uh, things that an army needed to fight a revolution. And imagine the rising without the women there. It would, have be, it would be a very different rising to the one we actually got. Um, what happened afterwards? Afterwards, the women become the propagandists. They become the great propagandists of the revolution. Uh, the men are in internment camps up to 1917. Uh, the leadership is dead, executed, or uh, killed in the rising. Uh, so now you have the women keeping uh, the Republican movement alive. And in interesting ways, the women begin the first commemoration 
because in 1917, Helena Maloney, again, uh, a very underrated character, I think, in terms of the rebellion, um, and a, a number of the Irish Citizen Army women and Cumann women reprint the proclamation, and they try and paste it up around the city. They also try and put flags up on all the different outposts that had been used in 1916. So they begin that process of commemoration that we're continuing on to today. And indeed, it's another woman, Lily O'Brellan, who had fought uh, in 1916 in the Marlborough Lane outposts, who uh, begins the national collection in the National Museum of 1916, uh, the 1916 collection. So the women understand the importance of symbolism and the importance of reclaiming spaces, because of course they're very used to, re to claiming spaces. They've, women have been on the margins because of their gender. So they're used to that claiming of spaces in all sorts of ways. Um, they managed to get the tricolor over the GPO again and keep it up for a few hours. And then on the 12th of May, 1917, they hang a big banner over uh, Liberty Hall in honor of James Connolly, saying James Connolly murdered 12th of May, 1916. And they hold off uh, the Dublin Metropolitan Police for quite a number of hours. That's Helena Maloney, Rosie Hackett, Bridget Davis, and Jenny Shanahan. Uh, so they're very, very aware of the effect of propaganda, and they use the Easter widows very effectively on propaganda. And then when it comes to 1918, they're involved in two big uh, um, events. They're involved in the anti-conscription campaigns to make sure that Irishmen don't have to, uh, are not forced to join the British Army for that last year. Uh, well, of course, nobody knew it was the last year, but for those last years of the, um, of the First World War. And then, of course, women get the vote in 1918, and they're very involved in the general election campaigns, and one woman, Countess Markovic, is elected. And I think we also need to look at the importance of the female vote in Sinn Féin's overwhelming victory in 1918, sweeping about 73 out of 105 seats. What impact had the female vote for the first time had on that. And again, we're talking today, there's a court case going on about gender quotas. It's amazing, 100 years later, we're still talking about women, getting women involved in mainstream politics and getting them in to our, uh, our national parliament. Um, in the War of Independence, they continued doing the activism that they had always done. Uh, they were the couriers, they ran the safe houses, they did first aid, uh, they brought arms to ambushes. They were also on the front line. They couldn't go on the run. So any activism, any activities on the part of the back and tans or the auxiliaries on communities, it was the women in the houses who felt the worst effect of um, raids on their houses, particularly raids late at night when families were dragged out of their beds. And there's a whole series of research that needs to be done into the trauma effect of the War of Independence on women and children particularly. In the Civil War, what is coming out more and more, particularly the research I've been doing on 77 women of the Easter Rising, is the vast majority of them are anti-treaty. Not all of them, but the majority of them are anti-treaty. Now, that is a small cohort, and I need to broaden the research out, but it's becoming obvious. So the question needs to be asked, why did the women reject the treaty in such overwhelming numbers? What was it that they were fighting for that they felt they couldn't compromise on? And we have to ask those questions about whether it was the proclamation and the promise of a republic, or the promise of equality, or a combination of all that, or indeed a promise of a socialist republic, which some of them were fighting for. Um, and this promise of equality, if you look at the history of the state since then, you could say the state is getting a red card on this. It is a failure uh, to live up 
to the proclamation promise in 1916. Uh, and just to give you an idea of the type, the first two decades of the Irish Free State were about chipping away at the rights of women, culminating in the 1937 Constitution, which um, Jesse and Sarah talked about this morning, um, culminating in that positioning of women within the home. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened as a deliberate process of social, cultural, and political will uh, of a state combined with a church that were determined to place women in a particular position. It's a process of identity formation, of post-colonial identity formation, uh, where women's bodies were seen uh, as necessarily uh, pure, moral, respectable. And anything other than that was not permissible. You had to get rid of it, imprison it, put it aside, uh, export it. Again, what are the, the legacies here? Are we continuing to do that today? And I think that's more of a rhetorical question than one I need answered, actually. Um, so if we look at these vivid faces and see the 1916 rising as that moment of possibility when anything could have happened, uh, what then did happen and what legacies do we need to learn from those moments of possibility in the 21st century where things may happen? Like the Waking the Feminists, like um, no more manals is a hashtag I'm involved in on Twitter. You know, creating spaces where women's voices don't necessarily have to be add-ons, but that they are integrated, that it becomes an unconscious, unthinking process, that you will always have a multiplicity of voices, not just middle, not women, not just middle-class women, but women, migrant women, traveler women, uh, traveler men, that we understand that the reflection of our society uh, and the reflection of those of us who speak needs to reflect the society in all its, uh, in all its diversity. So, <clears throat> little plug here. Uh, the book I've been doing and the research I've been doing is on the 77 women of the Easter Rising who were arrested. And a lot of that research comes out of that. And it's going to be launched on the commemoration day for the women of 1916 on March the 8th in IMA. Um, and so uh, I hope you will all come to the book launch, it's at five o'clock. And these are the themes that came out of it. We need to look at class, we need to look at gender, we need to look at sexuality, the history of sexualities. Many of these women were in same-sex relationships. Those questions are coming out of that. They also made choices about heterosexual relationships. There were love matches, not a, not a common thing in that time. So in this post-revolutionary decade, or this post-colonial uh, 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 time, we need to ask questions about how uh, colonization, how gender politics, class politics, all served to create the state we had. Uh, and those questions, and they are the conversations that we are beginning to have now. So expanding the conversation is part of this process of commemoration. And it is great to have uh, um, events like this that continue that process of con uh, uh, expanding the conversation. Thank you.